Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. It's Wall Builders, where we take on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. Today, we're in the middle of a three-day program. David Barton speaking at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference just a few weeks ago. And so we're going to jump right into that. I'm Rick Green, by the way, America's Constitution coach and a former Texas legislator. Normally here with David and Tim Barton. David, of course, America's premier historian and our founder at Wall Builders. And Tim Barton, national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. But today, we're going to head out to the Legislators Conference and listen to David's presentation. Uh, yesterday, we got the first part. We'll jump right back in where we left off. Here's David Barton at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. Who today would tell somebody that you're not ready to become a Christian? Somebody came and said, I want to become a Christian. Easy. Let's do it. Here's a prayer. You pray. Back then, they said no. Now, why would they have said no to him back then? Why, why was he rejected? I want to become a Christian. They said no. Because it goes back to what Jesus said in Luke 14. He says, you have to count the cost before you become my disciple. You, Dwight, you don't understand what's going to be required of you as a Christian. And until you understand the price you're going to have to pay as a Christian, you, you need to study a little more. And so what happened was Jesus said, you can't be my disciple if you don't count the cost. He says, who goes out and, and attacks a city without knowing the size of the enemy? Who goes out and builds a tower without knowing how much it's going to cost? You, you never start into a project without knowing what it's going to cost you. And you just you don't need to get started as a Christian without knowing the cost you're going to have to, to pay for that because you might decide it's too high a price and you might walk away. And so Jesus laid it out really simple to his disciples, and this is the way the church used to practice it. So in, in the case of Dwight, he didn't say the sinner's prayer, which is pretty much where a whole lot of the evangelical church has gone today. You want to receive Jesus? Here's a prayer you can say, follow this, pray with me, pray this prayer out loud. And so we've done the sinner's prayer. Now, I'll point out, if you go back through American history, you take the great revivalists of the 1700s, uh, you take the great revivalists of the 1800s, uh, you take even what happened all the way back with great leaders across the world from Paul on, none of them used the sinner's prayer. That was not part of what any of them did to get people brought to Christ. So there was no sinner's prayer in use at all. This is not what they did. What they did was, here's what it costs to be a disciple. You want to be a disciple? Here's what it's going to cost you. There was a price to pay. And so they they did exactly what Jesus said. They were making disciples of everyone, not making converts of everyone. Now, the difference is the sinner's prayer, where did it come to use? Historically, the sinner's prayer was introduced by Billy Sunday in the 1920s, and it was a way to count people at the meetings. He just didn't know. Their crowds were so massive, and we don't really know who's been affected, so let's do a sinner's prayer, and that way whoever says it, we can count them at the end and know what kind of impact. So we're trying to measure impact by counting heads, and we're counting heads not on what they know or, or what price they, they're willing to pay. We're counting heads. And so this is introduced in the 1920s, and the church today acts like this is what we've always done throughout history. No, it's not. This is a really new innovation, and it's a 1920s innovation, and it's not part of history at all. And so Jesus, go back to discipleship. It's counting the cost. Did you know that in the book of Acts, it talks about the seed of the unlearned? And the seed of the unlearned um, was part of the conversion process to become a Christian in the book of Acts. It was estimated, historians say, that it was probably a three- to four-year process. You had different levels. As you learned in this level, you'd move up to the next seat. So the seat of the unlearned, these are the ones who want to know something about Christianity. They want to know what's required, what does it involve, if I become a Christian. So you go there, and you have classes, you learn about it, and then you go to the next level. And it took three to four years to actually be considered a Christian. 
Even though they had a lot of responses of 3,000 to 5,000 a day of Pentecost, they had that, but they went into the seat of then learned it is what the book of Acts tells us. And so that was a Jewish tradition that you had to go through some classes. You had to, to learn what this is all about. Uh, you know, it's like you want to become a mechanic. You don't just sign up for it. You have classes to go through. You can't just say, I've declared myself a mechanic. I'm a mechanic. No, you have to go through a learning process. And so that's what the church used to do was that, that type of learning process. So the, the concept that we have now of everything being a, a, about discipleship is what it should be. But we've made it more about evangelism, which is good because we know that's one of the fivefold ministry in, in the New Testament is evangelists. But evangelists perk your interest, and then you get into the process, and you have to learn what's, what's coming. And so that was just the, the way the church worked. That's the way church worked in America. That's the way the word church worked in, in Scotland and Europe and elsewhere. So that's the second thing is it's about discipleship. It's not about getting people converted. It's about getting people to think right, to act right, to live right, to live out their faith. It's about making disciples of all men, teaching them what Jesus has said in all those different areas. So that's the second aspect. The third is it's very practical. You know, every one of these things is popping up on the screen right now. Christians today should be able to put a Bible verse to every one of those things because every one of those things are very clearly taught in the Bible. This is part of the problem we have with a lot of professing Christians. They don't have a clue what the Bible says on practical life or even how to live it. So this is, this is something that happens with the revival is you start making your faith very practical. You start seeing how to apply God's principles in every aspect of life. And this is something the church doesn't do by and large. This is something that most pastors can't do by and large. If I ask pastors to, to give me verses on free enterprise, it's going to be probably a long conversation while I wait for them to answer you know, the same thing, with what's, what does God say about progressive income tax? Which, by the way, Jesus has teachings on what we call the progressive income tax, different title back then, but it's the same, it's the same thing of, of taxing people in different rates and different brackets. Of what, what does the Bible say about that? So all of these things are, are biblical issues, but it takes biblical knowledge. And let me take you back. The first time we get introduced to Abraham is in Genesis 12. And so in Genesis 12, we're introduced to Abraham. God really likes Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. And so what happens is Abraham has his sons, Isaac and Jacob. And from Jacob, he, Jacob marries Rachel and Leah, and they have 12 children. Those become the 12 tribes of Israel. The one we know the most about is, is going to be Joseph. There's more time spent on Joseph than any of the other 12 sons. And so Joseph, we know, gets sold into slavery. Then he ends up in Egypt, and, and all the brothers think he's dead, but he ends up being number two in command in Egypt. And so being number two in command in Egypt, the brothers get into a drought. They need the food. They go to Egypt, and they finally get re reunited with their brother. And Joseph says, hey, is dad still alive? Hadn't seen him in decades. Yeah, he's still alive. So he goes and he gets reunited with dad. And they said, hey, why don't you just come to Egypt? I've got a really good gig there. I'm second in command. I get you a great place to stay. We'll take care of you. So everybody picks up and they move to Egypt. And it's a really good deal for the family until they have a Pharaoh that forgets who they were, and then they all go into slavery. So you have slavery for 400 years. And after 400 years of slavery, God says, eh, not doing this anymore. That's enough of that. So he sends Charlton Heston to deliver them. And so Charlton Heston comes, and so Moses comes, and, and Moses delivers them. And so they leads them out. And so those 10 great miracles, the 10 great plagues that happen, uh, God shows his power. He leads them out. And so Moses gets them out, and God kills the Egyptians with the Red Sea, so they don't have an enemy behind them at all. They now have free free reign to go wherever they want. They, they can go where they want, so they have a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that leads them, and leads them out to the mountain. And when they get out to the mountain, God says, okay, we're stopping here. 
you guys, nobody's chasing you, and you don't have a clue where you're going or what's expected of you, so we need to have a meeting right here. So they camp there at the mountain, and this is where God delivers to them 613 laws. Now, the reason this is significant is because these people had been in slavery for 400 years. The problem for being in problem from being in slavery for 400 years is you act like a slave, you think like a slave, you expect like a slave. That's why when they got free for a while, they said, man, let's go back to Egypt. It's not nearly as much work to be a slave because at least they feed us there. And so you go, why would people want to go back to Egypt? Because you got a slave mentality and you've been a slave for 400 years and you're used to people get, taking care of you and doing everything. And God says, I, I got to break you of that. And so we're going to stop here at the mountain. I'm going to show you a new way to live. And it gives them 613 laws, and the 613 laws encompass everything that any civil government ever needs to address. They're all there. And this is why Israel went from being a slave nation to being the greatest empire in the ancient world because they took that code that dealt with every business thing, every moral issue, every military issue, every immigration issue. They had three groups of immigrants. I mean, just they, they have what we would call uh, a natural-born citizen, a green card holder, uh, and, and an immigrant citizen. So they had three levels of citizenship in, in, in the law. I mean, all this stuff is, is there. And so what happens is when they start to go into the promised land, they're still not thinking right. And that's why I says, okay, you guys just stay in the wilderness till the old ones all die off, and you new ones, you'll get it, you'll go in. So he's still trying to get the thinking right. This is discipleship. Get your thinking right on this. And this is what they worked on. So God leads them in. And it's interesting that when you look at the 613 things, we were fully aware of that in the early church. Let me show you some of the sermons that were preached back then with all the stuff you saw at the, at the collection of the night. We've got thousands, thousands of old sermons. And tell me if you've heard these sermons in, in, your, in, in your experience. Probably not. Okay, folks, quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Wall Builder. This is Tim Barton from Wall Builders with another moment from American history. American patriot Paul Revere rode to alert Americans of the impending arrival of the British, but he also sought patriot leaders Samuel Adams and John Hancock to warn them that the British were seeking their execution. Adams and Hancock were staying with the Reverend Jonas Clark in Lexington. When they asked Pastor Clark if his church was ready for the approaching British, he replied, I've trained them for this very hour. They will fight and, if need be, die under the shadow of the house of God. Later that morning, 70 men from his church faced several hundred British in the first battle of the War for Independence. As Pastor Clark affirmed, the militia that morning were the same who filled the pews of the church meeting house on the Sunday morning before. The American church was regularly at the forefront of the fight for liberty. For more information on this pastor and other colonial patriots, go to wallbuilders.com. Welcome back to Wall Builders. We're going to jump right back in with David at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. Uh, this is a sermon preached in front of Governor John Hancock, Lieutenant Governor Sam Adams, and the Council, Senate, and House of Representatives from 1619 and Till about the 1920s and 30s, it was typical for every state legislative session on its opening day to have a minister come in and give guidance on the issues they were facing. If the issue of the session is going to be education, well, here's what the Bible says about education. Whatever the issue was, that's what they would deal with. So if it was military, if it was taxes, if it was whatever it was, 
you'd have a sermon come in and say, here's what God says about that particular issue. Now, we have about 260 of these sermons on the website, but this is how we did. We, did, we talked about government. I have not heard many sermons at all in my lifetime about government out of pulpits. And God has a whole lot to say about it, as evidenced by the fact he gave 613 laws. Here's a sermon on judges. It's a big, that's a big, significant sermon. As a matter of fact, judges to me is the number one issue in any election, especially a federal election, because Isaiah 126, God says, I'll give you judges at the beginning, lawyers as at the first, and then you'll be called the nation of righteousness, a holy nation. It's interesting, God ties the righteousness of a nation to the judges you have in the nation, which is where we got Roe v. Wade. It's where we got the redefinition of marriage. It's where we got the removal of prayer and Bible from schools. It wasn't legislatures that did that. It was judges that did that. And the whole nation pays for what the judges did. So we put a whole lot of emphasis on judges, judges being accountable. We used to elect judges. Now 24 states have gone to Missouri plan where we appoint judges. Not a good deal. We elected judges in the Bible. So there's, there's all this stuff on judges in the scriptures. And that's literally the kind of sermons we had because we had judges. The Bible talks about judges. So let's have sermons on judges. Uh, same way, here's a sermon on the relation of the medical profession to the ministry, health care. God is part of what he gave to the, to the Jews in the 613 laws. There was an extensive health code. And there was a doctor in 1961 that ended up writing this book called None of These Diseases, it's based on the passage in Exodus 15, 26, where God told his people, he says, if you will do all the things that I have told you with health care, I'll put on you none of the diseases that I put on Israel. If you'll do my health care laws, you won't have the, the health problems that these other nations have. And so it's an extensive code of health care in, in the Bible. And so the doctor said, well, you know, here we are in 1961. And as it turns out, we've got dozens of studies that show God's health care laws were right. Now, that's in 61. We've got so many more studies today that show that. But most people have no clue that God had health care. But we had sermons on it back in the day. So we had sermons on health care. Here's a sermon on the character and tendency of the property tax adapted to a permanent system of taxation by Reverend Glover. Anybody ever heard a sermon on property tax? See, there's so many taxes the Bible deals with. What are good taxes? What are bad taxes? That's covered biblically. So economics was an issue we covered. Uh, the existence of God demonstrated in the works of creation, a sermon preached on Lord's Day. That sounds like an evolution creation sermon. It is, but it's 1795. I thought Darwin is the guy who did evolution in 1859. What Darwin did significantly was nothing new in evolution. He took 2,500 years of evolutionary teaching and synthesized it in the book. What Darwin did was made evolution easy to understand. Every single thing Darwin posited, everything that everyone back in that day on evolution said had been in place since the time of Aristotle. There was not a new argument. The primordial slime, the intermediary species, the, the evolution, the rise from ape to man, all of that is there 2,500 years before Darwin wrote his book. What Darwin did was made it easy to understand. So there's nothing new. So back in the day, it's interesting to see how many fathers wrote, founding fathers wrote about evolution. Matter of fact, uh, Daniel Webster, 1801, his senior paper at Dartmouth University was Creation versus Evolution. That's what he focused on. When John Quincy Adams wrote a book that came out in 1848, he has a long, extensive area on creation versus evolution. This was not a new topic to them. We think it's new through Darwin. And by the way, as Glenn mentioned the other day, when you look at Darwin's title, this is the title of the book, The Origin of Species. But the part that nobody covers today is the preservation of favored races and the struggle for life. If you buy Darwin's Origin of Species today and get it on the web, it will not have that subtitle there. That is part of the subtitle. And his position was 
the more evolved you are, the lighter your skin is. The less evolved you are, the darker your skin is. And the descent of man, he actually has eight passages where he talks about, you know, we really need to send dark-skinned people back to Africa till they turn white and then bring them back to America where they'll integrate really well. So the whole thing of race, if you want to cancel somebody, why don't we cancel Darwin? Because that's where racism, this is systemized, systematic, scientific. We're, we're just following the science is, is all we're doing. We're just, that's where racism comes from is we're just following. No, racism comes from, from the heart. The, the Jim Crow kind of racism that America got into came from following the science where we started codifying that and making it law. Racism is an issue of the heart. It goes back to the Bible. So we had a lot of sermons on scientific controversies. Uh, this is a sermon on gambling, the sinfulness and pernicious nature of gaming. This is 1751. By the way, you'll find that most of the sermons you're looking at here were preached during Great Awakenings. These are revival sermons. And revivals, we get back to being very, very practical. 1751 is the heart of the first Great Awakening. Uh, this is a sermon on the liquor law of Massachusetts. Is it good or bad? It's 1852. This is the heart of the second Great Awakening. We said, here's what the legislature did this week. Here's the law they passed. Here's what the Bible says. Okay, that's a good law. It matches up. The legislature did it right. Uh, here's one on the slave trade. This is another Great Awakening era sermon. Uh, this one's marriage scripturally considered. This is 1837. This is the second Great Awakening. Here's what the legislature did on a marriage law this week. Here's what the Bible says. Okay, that law is acceptable. We would look at laws from the perspective of the Bible, and these are sermons on laws that were passed last week or last month or whatever. Here's a sermon calling for civil disobedience. The fugitive slave law is such a wicked law that if any Christian obeys this federal law, you will be disobeying God. And across the, and this is part of the Second Great Awakening, calling for massive civil disobedience because if you obey a law that God is against, you're not going to get blessed by God. So you have to disobey bad law. You would not hear that today from, from most churches. These are revival sermons. So social policy, here's one on elections. So voting, this is an area where we talked even on Thursday it's a suppressed Christian voter turnout. It's really down. We don't have our leaders urging Christians to be involved in the civil process, to vote even. Uh, this is a discourse on earthquakes, 1755. This is a first great awakening sermon. Uh, this actually is Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew, one of the guys that kept the revival going in Boston. Here's a sermon five years later on the Great Fire. So if there's something in the news, we talked about it. We've got a natural disaster going on. What's the Bible say about natural disasters, how to handle what happens? Here's the cry of Sodom inquired into. It's an LGBTQ sermon. This doesn't happen much at all. This is one of those 2.8 kind of percent sermons that pastors talk about. 77% of Christians today self-censor on this issue because they're afraid of being attacked if they say something because they know that whatever they believe is going to be attacked and they don't want to be attacked. And so with no backbone, we don't talk about this stuff. But these are sermons we had on it. Uh, here's a sermon on the discovery of the new planet, 1847, Uranus. This is a sermon on comets down at the bottom. It's two sermons occasioned by the late blazing star. Uh, here's a sermon on a solar eclipse, 1806. That's the early part of the Second Great Awakening. We, we covered all sorts of stuff on science and astronomy because the Bible covers stuff on science and astronomy. Uh, here's a sermon on the infirmities and comforts of old age. Probably not a popular topic, but everybody grows old and has to deal with it. So sermons on aging. Uh, here's a sermon, 1795, the education of children. And so we covered education, which would be a really ripe topic today for people to talk about. Religion, patriotism, constituents of a good soldier. This is 1755. This is a sermon preached by Samuel Davies, the guy who kept the revival going extra 19 years in Virginia Valleys, preaching about the military because we have all sorts of stuff in the Bible and militaries. Here's a sermon on the moral view of railroads, 1851. The moral view of railroads? All right, folks, last break of the day. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Wobblers. 
Hey, this is Tim Barton with Wall Builders. And as you've had the opportunity to listen to Wall Builders Live, you've probably heard the wealth of information about our nation, about our spiritual heritage, about the religious liberties, about all the things that makes America exceptional. And you might be thinking, as incredible as this information is, I wish there was a way that I could get one of the Wall Builders guys to come to my area and share with my group, whether it be a church, whether it be a Christian school or public school or some political event or activity, if you're interested in having a wall builder speaker come to your area, you can get on our website at www.wallbuilders.com and there's a tab for scheduling. And if you'll click on that tab, you'll notice there's a list of information from speakers' bios to events that are already going on. And there's a section where you can request an event to bring this information about who we are, where we came from, our religious liberties and freedoms. Go to the Wall Builders website and bring a speaker to your area. Welcome back to Wall Builders. We're going to jump right back in with David Barton. He's speaking at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. Whatever was in the news, we're going to show you what the Bible talks about. Bible doesn't talk about railroads, yeah, but it does talk about transportation. He went through the principles of transportation. It's what he went through on this sermon. He said, when you see the biblical principles of transportation, here's where railroads fit in right over here, and here's the moral view of railroads. This is a great, this is a second great awakening sermon. So this is the type of stuff that was happening in second great awakening, a voice of warning to Christians on the ensuing election of the president of the United States. We talked about politics, everything. This is discipleship. This is what a revival looks like as you cover all the areas. You get real specific. You're, you're doing discipleship. And so that's what the sermons were. So why did they preach the sermons? Because we believe what the scripture says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness. Why did God give us, and I believe that's the number one doctrine of the Bible. That's where we get the teaching that the word of God is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. It is true all the time. It comes from that passage. I think that is the most important teaching in the Bible because if the Bible is not true, you really can't trust it. And so you got to pick and choose what you're going to go with. So that's a super important teaching. Why did God give us inspired scripture? He tells us in the next verse that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, every good work. We used to believe the Bible dealt with every single aspect of life. We have made it a spiritual book now. It used to be a book for living. It used to be a law book. It used to be an education book. It used to be a military guidebook. It used to be everything you needed because that's what took slaves and turned them into nations, turned them into empires. So biblically, how about today? Where are we today? Well, again, when you see all these issues, they're not covered. 2.8% of pastors cover these issues, and that's doing polling with George Barna, polling 500 churches a day. Uh, what we find is 2.8% of pastors. It's hard to have a revival if you don't know what the Word of God says about something because the, the, the revival is coming back to God's standards. It's coming back to what God wants done. And if we're not talking about it, it's hard for people to come back to it. So, and by the way, don't think I'm being discouraging here because I think we're in a revival. And I think I can prove that and I'll show it to you later. But only 6% of Americans today have a biblical worldview. This is why you have so much attack when you try to do something good legislatively. 94% of the people have not a clue what you're doing and it doesn't comport with their secular worldview. So you get attacked for it, and this is where churches could step up and give you a lot of help, but even the pastors don't know a lot of this stuff because they've been trained as more, not as disciples, but, but as converts. They're, they're good on, on salvation, but they're not good on, on living. And so that's where you've seen a real decline in Christians in America. Back in the year 2000, 85% of Americans professed to be Christians. In the year 2020, 20 years later, 65% of Americans professed to be Christians. We've seen this thing nosedive. And again, working with Barna, Barna 
calling people who no longer go to church. Why'd you stop going to church? Two out of three say, I quit going to church because there's nothing relevant going on there. It's just a waste of my morning. I don't get anything I can live with during the week. I want something that helps me face what's going on in life. We actually did a large study with Barna um, where that we asked the people who go to church, what do you, what do you need for the week? What, what do you need to hear from pastor? For the week? And they gave 14 areas where that 70% of people in church said, I really am hungry for this area. This is, this is what I face in the week. This is what I need to be trained on. And that's where we found only 2.8% of pastors actually address the areas that people are hungry for. And that's why people have stopped going to church so large. So practical sermons was, was part of what went on. Um, you remember Jesus, all the teachings he did in the Gospels. He talked about church and he talked about the kingdom of God. How much did he talk about church? Three times. How much did he talk about the kingdom of God? 141 times. Jesus wasn't into building the church. He was into building the kingdom. And that's why he was so practical on the things he said and gave his disciples so much guidance. And that's, that's, that's the difference. We can't build the church. We've got to build the kingdom. We've got to get people thinking right, acting right, doing right, behaving right. That's where Ben Franklin said, I love going around Philadelphia now because everybody's singing a psalm when they go down the street. Never heard that before. Whitfield comes to town, gets revival started. Gilbert Tennant keeps the revival going. So that's the third thing, practical. The other four are going to move much more quickly. So those are the three big ones. Then the four, these are the four are kind of the manifestations of that. Change occurs slowly. Um, if you go and look specifically with the first great awakening, how long did the first great awakening last? 40 years. It was a 40-year revival. We often think if we have a revival, it's going to get fixed, and it's going to be quick, and it's going to be really nice to have people different that I work with. No, it's a 40-year process. Take the second great awakening. The second great awakenings went from 1801 to 1878. 77 years? You could have been born in 1802, died in 1877, be 75 years old, lived your whole life in a revival, and you had no clue that everything you experienced was in a revival. Revivals are slow. They take time because it takes a while for people to change their thinking, and then it takes a while to change their behavior. Okay, folks, we're out of time for today. That was the second part in a three-part series. David Barton speaking out at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. Tomorrow we'll get the conclusion. So be sure and tune in tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening to Wall Builders. We stand undivided.